Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you again for the privilege that you have given us to call ourselves children of God and to gather together corporately to worship you in truth and spirit this day. Father, we know that all is vain unless your spirit comes and meets with us to give us insight and understanding of your truth. So we pray, Father, that your spirit would work in our lives to accomplish your purpose. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We know that we are sinners in need of your grace each and every day, and we thank you, Father, that we can come boldly into your throne room knowing that Christ has paid our debt, that our sins are no longer held against us, but, Father, they have been wiped clean, and we give you praise and honor for such a great salvation that accomplishes such a wonderful thing. We pray, Father, that you would teach us as we study from the Gospel of Mark this day, that we would understand who Christ is, that we would know Him personally, that He would guide us and direct us in our life as our Lord and Savior. We pray for those, Father, that do not know Christ as Lord and Savior and that today would be the day of salvation. We pray for the conviction of sin, for the understanding of their lost condition, so that they might flee to Christ, the only one who is able to save. We thank you that the gospel is being proclaimed throughout the world this day and that many are being brought into your kingdom. And we give you praise for such a great work of saving sinners from their sin. We pray for those unable to be with us, those that we've already mentioned who need your healing hand upon their body. Strengthen them. Be pleased to renew their health and bring them back to worship with us. We pray for those, Father, who are away from us this day, traveling. We pray that you would bless their time of worship where they worship today and that you would bring them back to us quickly. We also pray for those that would not be here due to lack of concern for their own spiritual condition. How we pray, Father, that you would bring conviction into their life so that they would not forsake the assembling together of the brethren, but they would renew their selves with thee, and that they would join us next Lord's Day. Father, again, we thank you for your goodness and grace in our life, and it's in the name of Christ that we pray, and for his sake, amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Mark chapter 11. We return to the Gospel of Mark. We will read verses 1 through 11. Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now when they came near Jerusalem to Bethlehem, to, I'm sorry, to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent out two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a coat tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the coat tied to the door outside the street. They loosed it, and some of those who stood there said to them, 
What are you doing, loosing the coat? So they spoke to him just as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. Then they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their garments on it and sat on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their garments on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Today, Jesus is often presented in various ways to people. Accept Jesus and he will make you feel better. Or let Jesus into your heart and he will give you happiness as you desire. Or trust in Jesus and he will solve all of your problems. I could say a number of other sayings, but I won't. But due to man's sinful heart, And his sinful desires, we see that he seeks a Jesus of his own making and not a biblical one. He seeks a Jesus who will do his will instead of the Father's will. A Messiah who will meet all of his fleshly desires. Now most want a Jesus like a genie. Uh, The other night had our grandsons over, and they wanted to watch Aladdin, the new version of it. So I sat there and watched it with them. And of course, you know what happens when he finds that lamp, and he rubs it, and then there's a genie. And he only had three wishes, and he makes his wishes. Well, that's the kind of Jesus most people want. One, that they can rub a lamp and Jesus is there when they need him and then go back into the lamp. And when I need you again, then I will rub the lamp again. We have seen that even the disciples had their own idea about who Jesus was, who the Messiah was, and what he would do for them. And we may not admit it, But there are times that we are more like the disciples than we realize when we also seek to use Jesus in those similar ways. What we have today in this particular passage here in Mark chapter 11 is one of the most remarkable events in the life of Jesus. We have Jesus' triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. This begins the last week of Jesus' life. Now some of you may be thinking, well, you're almost finished with the book of Mark. No, we have a long ways to go. If you simply look at the chapters, you'll see it. Matter of fact, I looked on uh, sermon audio and I was looking at one particular pastor and he had 52 more sermons from here on. Now, I don't know how many more sermons I'm going to have from here to the end of Mark, but anyway, that gives you an idea of how much more is left in the book of Mark. 
as we looked at the very beginning of Mark, and I mentioned to you that one-third of Mark deals with this last week of Jesus' life. So we're beginning that. Now, this, of course, this particular passage that we're looking at, verses 1 through 11, is often called Palm Sunday. And John tells us in his gospel that the crowd greeted Jesus by carrying palm branches, which they waved and also others laid in his path. And all four gospels mention this particular event, which confirms the truthfulness of it. Now, of course, we don't need it to be mentioned but one time, but yet there is a stronger emphasis when it's mentioned in all four gospels. One liberal scholar, Marcus Borg, said, The logic is straightforward. If a tradition appears in an early source and in another independent source, then not only is it early, but it is also unlikely to have been made up. Now, aren't we thankful that these liberal scholars would even agree with us and say that this is not made up? Well, of course, we don't need a liberal scholar to tell us that. Because as believers, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. So we know that these accounts are not made up. That this is really what took place. And it's nice to know that it has passed the test of reliability even by secular historians. Now the historical case of Jesus' triumphant infantry is pretty solid. Even though there may be some differences between one right. Uh, gospel writer and another gospel writer. What you have to understand is they're telling it from their own perspective, even though it is still under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It'd be just like talking to two individuals that saw uh, an accident take place. They both saw the accident, but they're going to give you a different view of the way that they saw it. We all do that. We have to realize that the stories that are given here are all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and they're not made up. They're actually what took place even though there may be some differences as far as what is presented to us again from one aspect to the other aspect. But they all fully agree as far as the core of the story. We have to remember that they are giving their account, their perspective And they're also speaking to different audiences. Some are speaking to the Jews, some are speaking to the Gentiles, some are speaking to mixed congregations. So we have to keep that in mind as well. And we all do that. When I I go to Africa, I don't preach exactly the same way that I'm preaching today because I have to take into consideration who I'm preaching to and the education of the particular people that I'm preaching to. The same way when I go over and I do a devotion where mom's at there at Brookdale and talking to senior citizens, as I shared with you before, the oldest one there is 94. So, so I speak to them a little bit differently than I would speak to you, as well as when we go to family camp, I speak a different way to them. So we take those things into perspective as far as the gospel writers as well. But we do know that Jesus rides into Jerusalem seated on a donkey, a coat. And we see that he is hailed by the crowd who has come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, the feast. And they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now most that were there in that crowd 
did not understand the coming of the Messiah. Even though they had been told this, they did not understand who he was, nor did they understand what it meant that he was going to establish his kingdom. So therefore their understanding was based upon their own perspective of the Messiah. I mean, it's just like today. We all have various ideas on the second coming, do we not? I wish we were all unified. But we're not. I mean, there's at least five perspectives pertaining to the second coming. You have the historical premillennialists. You have the dispensationalists. You have the progressive dispensationalists. You have the amillennialists. And you have the postmillennialists. And under each one of those, they have different ideas. So if you go and you talk to different people about the second coming and what's going to happen, you're going to get different ideas, right? Well, the same way, this was the first coming. This was the first advent. And if you were to talk to people about who the Messiah was and how he was come and what he was going to accomplish, the people, the Jews, would have told you different things. But just like in Jerusalem, everyone was longing for the Messiah to come. We're all, even though we may fit into one of those five categories that I just mentioned, are we not all in agreement that we long for a Messiah to come? Well, that's the same way that they were. They all long for the Messiah to come. And some believe that Jesus was the Messiah even though their theology may have been wrong pertaining to who the Messiah was. And likewise, today we all long for Jesus' return. But none of us can say that we have it all figured out. And likewise, in that day and time, none of these Jews could say they had it all figured out. Now, this morning I want us to focus on John's account, or Mark's account of this event so that we might see the real majesty of the real Jesus. Listen to what one commentator says to kind of give us the setting that we have here. Now, before we look at this passage in detail, let's set the scene geographically and chronologically. It is in the spring of the year, the time of the great Passover feast in Jerusalem during the Jewish month of Nisan, which is the early part of April on our calendar. Passover always begins the 14th. With that year fell on Friday. Some scholars using the astronomy dates have determined that the date of the Passover feast during Jesus' crucifixion was either April the 3rd, A.D. 33, or April the 7th, A.D. 30. Now Jesus and his disciples are on their way up to Jerusalem for the Passover like thousands other pilgrims coming to the feast. They have just passed through the ancient city of Jericho, where, according to Mark 10, Jesus healed the blind Bartimaeus on his way out of town. Jericho was located 17 miles east of Jerusalem. The Roman road ascended from Jericho over the Mount of Olives, which was elevated 20 600 feet, stands directly opposite of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem across the Kindron Valley. So that gives you a little bit of update. 
You remember we looked at Mark chapter 10 and we saw Jesus heal blind Barnabas there in Jericho. Now he's moving from there to Jerusalem. Now we don't know exactly when he did all the things that he did between that time and going to um, the entrance here in Jerusalem. But a lot occurred during that as we see also in the gospel of Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Now, first, it's evident that Jesus knew his purpose in going to Jerusalem. Now, why did he know his purpose? Well, he orchestrated. We see that in verses 1 through 6. We've seen on three different occasions in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus clearly teaches his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem for what? To suffer, die, and rise from the grave. I mean, he was aware that he would be treated shamefully, that he would be crucified. He knew the religious leaders were plotting his death. They've been doing this for some time. I mean, all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. So this is not something that just came about. This is something that's been going on for over a year. They've been plotting his crucifixion, his death. Now we see that as he approaches Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethlehem. I mean, I'm sorry, of Bethany. I ought to remember that since I have a daughter named Bethany. John gives us the record of what happened. The last miracle that occurred there in Bethany was what? Children, do you know? What was the last miracle that occurred in Bethany? It was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. One of the greatest miracles that Jesus performed. Now again, we don't know exactly what day, when he did this, how, how far in advance he did this before he enters into Jerusalem. We're not given that information, but we know that sometime after Jericho and sometime before the triumphant entry that he did this. So we see that there's some great things that are taking place and the crowd is growing larger. Now I want us to look at some of the things that John tells us in his gospel to help us understand what's transpiring here. First of all, in John chapter 11, in verses 1 through 16, we see something very important that we need to take note of. It says there, Now a certain man, sick, Lazarus, a Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Margaret, and and I'm not going to read it, I'm just going to tell you that he was sick and what happened? He died, and then there in verse 4, Jesus heard that of this sickness, and he said, not unto death. Now, of course, they didn't understand what he was talking about there. But then he waits before he goes to Bethany, and Jesus goes, and then we see that Mary and Martha are upset because Jesus wasn't there uh, to heal him. But Jesus, of course, we know had a purpose, and he finally says, let us go to Judea again. And then the disciples followed him, and then we see that Jesus answered, he said, are there not, uh, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Of course, the disciples didn't understand that. They thought that he was simply sleeping. And then it goes on, and Jesus plainly tells them that Lazarus is dead. And then we see in verse 16... It says, Then Thomas, who is called Deimus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. So you see that Thomas and the other disciples evidently understood some of what Jesus had told them earlier about dying. Because he said, Look, let's go, and we're going to die with him anyway, so we're going to be martyrs. Now, look at what, again, what it says there in verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again? And then skip over the chapter, I mean, verse 16. What Thomas says there that we just read, let us go that we may die with him. Now, what does this say about Jesus performing this great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead? Well, notice on over in verse 45 of chapter 11. Then many of Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. And some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. What do they care about? Do they care about the people? No. All they care about is their place and their nation. And then jump on down to verse 50. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on the own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So we see A prophecy is fulfilled here when Caiaphas speaks of what will happen to Jesus. Now the reason I point this out is so that you grasp the hatred that the religious leaders had for Jesus. They could not stand him. They wanted to put him to death. Why? Because he threatened their authority. He threatened their place of authority. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that he was going to be put to death. Just as he had told the disciples earlier as we have looked at. And we see that Jesus Christ didn't go to the cross as a helpless victim. But he what? Willingly laid down his life for his people. So we see that the gospel writers emphasize that Jesus Christ was Lord. That he was master. And that he willingly went to the cross. So this entire situation is governed by Jesus. And that was his purpose from the very beginning. We know that. He is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophesied. In other words, what I'm saying, there was no plan B. 
Like some people have an idea. Well, well, Jesus really was coming and if the people would have treated Him rightly and the people would have bowed down and they would have recognized Him as the Messiah, who He was, then therefore there would have been a great revival that taken place and Jesus would have been exalted, etc., etc., etc. No, that's not the case. The case is that Jesus always knew that He was going to Jerusalem to be punished, suffer, and put to death, and then come forth from the grave. It was no accident that he would be arrested. No accident that he would be crucified. It was all preordained by the Father that Jesus Christ would fulfill his purpose of saving his people from their sins. So Jesus' majesty and authority begins to shine brighter and brighter from this day all the way to the following Sunday. So when they went to Bethlehem, Jesus also is anointed. Again, I wish we knew exactly what day all of this happened on so that we'd have the chronological order, but we know that he's anointed by Mary. And then he sends two disciples into Jerusalem to retrieve the donkey, one that had never been ridden on before. This is exactly as Jesus had stated. You may ask, why in the world did Jesus need to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey that had never been ridden before? Well, if you heard what was read this morning in our scripture reading, it was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9. Now, it's very unusual for most people to ride into Jerusalem. Most people would actually walk into Jerusalem unless you were someone of notoriety and then you would ride not a donkey, you'd ride a stallion with your army. But we see here that Jesus comes in riding on a donkey and we see the scripture that is fulfilled. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you he is just and saving salvation and having salvation, lowly and riding a donkey, a coat, a fold of a donkey. Sinclair Ferguson says this was not a spur of the moment idea of Jesus' part, on Jesus' part. For those who have eyes to see, it was a deliberate claim to be the one whom the prophets declared him to be. So therefore, those who had eyes to see understood it and accepted it. Second, let us look at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that is a part of His passion. I mean, if we think about all that has preceded this entry into Jerusalem, we have a better understanding of why the crowd acted the way the crowd acted. Sometimes earlier we see that Jesus performed this miracle that we were speaking of as far as Lazarus being raised from the dead. Now, what happens when that happens? Well, you know, news travels quick. It was spreading all over the place. I mean, news had already spread about Jesus and all the wonderful things that he had done when he healed the sick and when he made the lame to walk and on and on and on we could go. But I mean, now again, he has raised someone from the dead. Now, he had raised others from the dead, right? But on this occasion, it was a little bit different. Why? Lazarus stinketh. Isn't that what his sisters, I mean, Mary Margaret told him? Mary Margaret, hey. (laughs) Two different people. And he'd been in the grave, what, three days? 
Three days he had been in the grave, and now he is raised from the dead. This was the most significant miracle of all of his miracles, as far as the people were concerned. I mean, many had heard about much of what Jesus had done, but this was a new level of hysteria. It was beyond comprehension what was taking place as far as the news spreading about Jesus. It was kind of like when the Beatles came to USA. Some of y'all are just not old enough to know that. You'll have to go back and watch the video clips of that. Us old folks know what we're talking about. I mean, it was hysteria. Girls were literally fainting over the Beatles coming to the U.S. I don't know if anybody was fainting over Jesus coming or not, but I mean, it was hysteria. People were were so excited that they would actually lose their breath, and that's why they would faint. That could have happened in Jesus' day, and we see that they greeted Jesus as their king. I mean, they are singing, and they're shouting, and they're waving palm branches, and they're laying their, their garments on the road to allow Jesus to walk on them with his donkey. And they're rejoicing. They're, they're bursting with joy and excitement. It was much like the day of King David when he came back from his wars that he would be involved in, in the battles, and he would be victorious, and they would welcome him. It was kind of like the uh, uh, parades that they have in New York when they came back from World War II, the ticket parades that they have. It, it was a great time of excitement, yet they did not know that the animal that Jesus sat on had never been ridden, but some of the disciples, of course, knew that. They also knew that the Old Testament system of worship only allowed an animal that had never been used to be offered. So we see that there's symbolism here. Symbolism that Jesus had come to give his life as a ransom sacrifice. He was to be offered on the altar. It mentions it in both Numbers and Deuteronomy that an animal was... A sacred animal, a sacred animal must be offered on the altar, one that was without blemish, one that had never been used for any other purpose. So as Jesus enters Jerusalem, notice that he enters on this coat, meek and lowly, not in his glory, for he knew that in a few days he would be rejected by many of these same people. And of course, throughout his ministry, these were the main qualities, humility and meekness. He he never sought to draw attention to himself as a celebrity. Matthew 11, 28 through 30 says, Come to me, all you who are laboring, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for your yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No man has ever humbled himself like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He showed his humility and love as he wept over Jerusalem. His heart burst with sorrow. He wept over the unbelief and of the sin of the people. Notice what the Gospel of Luke says. Luke chapter 11. 
speaks of how, I mean 19, speaks of how Jesus rides into Jerusalem, beginning there in verse 41. Now he drew near, he saw the city, and notice what it says. He wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you, and close you on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's speaking about, first of all, the beginning of the week and how he will be tormented, how his death will come, how he will suffer, and how they will reject him. Now, it must have grieved his heart to see such ignorance, such ignorance in the people. They knew that one day someone would come and enter into Jerusalem as the Messiah, but they did not understand who or why. Now, they cry three different phrases. First, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now, those words mean, save, I pray, from the highest heaven. But think about that. Jesus is the only one that is perfect. He needed no salvation. So why in the world are they crying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest? Now they certainly weren't crying out for their own salvation. This was religious corporate excitement. We see this often in many congregations today. To stir up the congregation. Like I said last week, some groups will have a Christian concert to stir up the emotions of people. To get all kinds of excitement so that they can say, we worship the Lord. But often these same people ignore the very God that they say they are worshiping in those services. They ignore His law. They ignore His grace. But yet you stand at the door afterwards and they come out, boy, we had a wonderful worship experience. How can you have a wonderful worship experience when you don't even exalt Christ in the way that He has commanded to be exalted? The second phrase they shout, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's Psalms 18, 118, 25 through 26. But this isn't referring to the Messiah. But it's referring to the pilgrims that come to Jerusalem, to the temple. So the meaning is, may he be blessed in the name of God. Again, Jesus is not a pilgrim. Jesus wasn't going up to Jerusalem as the pilgrims did. 
He's the one that guides the pilgrims through the barren land to their eternal home. He is the Lord. He is the master of His people guiding them through this world. Listen to what John Piper says. When God blesses men, they are thereby helped and strengthened and made better off than they were before. But when men bless God... He is not helped or strengthened or made better off. Rather, man's blessing God is an expression of praising thankfulness. When the Old Testament speaks of blessing God, it does not designate a process that aims at increasing God's strength. It is an exclamation of gratitude and adoration. And then the third phrase, they shout, Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. This doesn't come from the Psalms. Matter of fact, you can't find it in the Bible. Except here you can find it in the Bible. So it's not that they're repeating a verse from the Old Testament. It's simply that they, something that they came up with. Jesus preached what? The kingdom of God. He didn't preach the kingdom of our father David. Now the mob wanted deliverance from what? They wanted deliverance from Rome. But this wasn't Jesus' mission. He did not come to deliver them from Rome. The crowd saw Jesus as joining with them here at the Passover, at the feast, in this wonderful temple. And He was with them on this pilgrimage, they thought that He would deliver them from the Roman oppression. Here we see that they were like so many people today. What they did, they interpreted Scripture according to their own mindset, according to their own desires, and they were ignorant of the most important truths and the unity of Scripture. Now this is why we have so much heresy and false doctrine in the church today. I mean, this mindset is not something new, is it? This mindset began shortly after the days of Jesus. We see that John writes to the Gnostics, about the Gnostics. We see that Jude writes about the false teachers, and Peter writes about the false prophets and teachers, and, and Paul goes on and on in his epistles as well about false teachers. A hundred years ago, higher criticism entered into theological seminaries and schools and began to fill churches with men who did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. What did this do? It destroyed all of the major denominations. Now, one thing that we don't really understand, Southern Baptists are not a denomination. Even though we call them a denomination, they're not a denomination because they don't function as a denomination, even though there are some that seek to try to make it function like a denomination. No, we are a group of churches who choose to associate with one another to do missions at home and abroad. But all the major denominations were destroyed by liberalism. That's the reason why you have like the PCA now or the, or the Reformed Presbyterian Church or uh, Congregational Method. All these different groups that came up because the major denominations were infiltrated by liberalism. Do you understand the disaster that takes place because of false teaching? And we are still seeing the devastating effect today. 
I mentioned a number of them last week in the sermon. I mean, people have completely changed worship services to where worship services are no longer worship services. They're entertainment time to have friendly seeker churches, which are not churches really at all. Now, the mob had a religion based on excitement. They were enthused, but yet they did not understand the Old Testament. They did not know how much, very much about Jesus. See, religious excitement is not Christianity. People can get excited over just about anything. And it's sad that churches have fallen into that mindset to where they try to get people excited with things. What ought to excite us is when we read and study God's Word and we allow our mind to meditate upon God's Word and we understand the greatness of God's salvation. When we begin to meditate upon our sins being forgiven, all of them, all of them wiped clean, they're they're removed, that Jesus paid our penalty and they're no longer held against us. Now, if that doesn't excite you, folks, then you don't understand the work of Jesus Christ. Now, that ought to excite us, not some musical band. Now, of course, I'm not against music. I mean, some wonderful new hymns are being written. Uh, The Gettys do a wonderful job. I love singing their courses. And those courses speak to our hearts and and our minds to where we think more of Christ and more of God. And that ought to be what takes place in a worship service. That's what ought to excite us as we meditate upon God's truth, as we think about what Jesus did here and why Jesus came into this world. That ought to excite us and move our hearts to worship Him and serve Him. But yet it must have grieved our Lord as these people gave him praise because he knew men. The scripture tells us that, that he knew men's heart. Luke tells us in Luke 19, 37, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God in a loud voice. Now that sounds wonderful, right? For what? For all the miracles they had seen. And see, that's what grieved Christ's heart. Their their admiration was based on what? Not the person and work of Christ. Their admiration was based on miracles. Throughout his ministry, we have seen that many followed Christ. Why? Because he provided for their needs. As I mentioned at the very beginning of this sermon, I mean, that's the kind of Jesus they wanted. One that will feed them fish and bread, one that will heal their sick, heal the lame, heal the blind. That's the kind of Jesus they wanted. They did not love Him. They loved what He could do for them. And there's a big difference. They enjoyed the benefits. They did not grasp His deity and the true benefit that comes from His deity. They completely missed the reason for the miracles. The reason for the miracles was to confirm His deity. 
That only God can raise the dead. That only God can make the blind to see. That only God could do the things that He was doing. And whoever glories in the wonders of the sign without relating it to the internal meaning is like someone who looks at a road sign that says go that way and they refuse to go that way and they go that way. And that's what was happening. I read a story of a man who was going door to door witnessing. And he met this older lady. And she told him how she had this wonderful experience at a crusade years earlier. She had been sick and she went to this faith healer and this faith healer prayed for her and eventually she, she was well and she gave praise to the faith healer and admired him and went on and on and on talking about him. But from that day forward, she had not darkened the doors of a church. See, she had deliverance from her sickness, but she did not have deliverance from her sin to where she loved Christ. Now this mob did not grasp Jesus' humanity. They thought, that he would immediately change things and lead them to victory. Today, a donkey. Tomorrow, a stallion. They didn't see him as a servant who came to lay down his life as a ransom for many, nor as the Lamb of God who satisfied the law of God completely and laid a perfect foundation of righteousness for His elect. They were totally blind to the truth. They had heard Scripture, but all they saw was miracle worker. They did not see the Savior who obtained salvation for their sins, who would reconcile men to God. They simply exalted His miraculous power but did not magnify His power to save sinners. This is why their cries went from Hosanna to the end of the week, crucify Him. Their lack of understanding Scripture and accepting Scripture caused them to fall into great error as well as greater sin. Their faith did not equal their zeal. Their godliness fell short of their enthusiasm. Their power and numbers were their delight, not worship, service, and humility. See, as long as Jesus did miracles and fed them, they they were excited. But later when he began to be the Lamb of God, led to the slaughter, who bowed his head in death at the cross, they all deserted him. Even his closest followers. See, they didn't want a meek and lowly king. They were more like the religious leaders than they wanted to admit. 
they had become just like the people that they despised and they rejected the true Jesus. They didn't want a Messiah whose calling was to atone for the sins of his people, to lay down his life in such a lowly fashion. And this was totally against their mindset. So here the mob is throwing down their garments, throwing down the palm branches, but really the plotting priest and the mob are united in their unbelief because sin is sin and unbelief is unbelief. And Mark points out that the popularity isn't discipleship. Zeal isn't faith. Great crowds aren't the confirmation of truth. We are to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and take up the cross and follow Him, not have a parade for Him. So as Jesus enters Jerusalem and goes to the temple, what does He do? He doesn't stand up at the temple and give a great speech, does He? No. He doesn't perform great miracles. No. He simply turns to his twelve and he said, Guys, it's, it's late. Let's go back to Bethany. I mean, the disciples, man, they were confused. What has just happened is probably what they're thinking. They were totally confused. They still had not figured out those words that Jesus had said earlier there in Luke chapter 19 verses 41 through 44 that we read a moment ago when he he spoke about what was going to happen there in Jerusalem because of the rejection. They had not put the puzzle together. They did not see that the crowd had rejected the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the promised Messiah. They were just as blind to these things as the crowd was. He had told them that there was coming a day of judgment when the Roman army would enter Jerusalem and it would take place, that desolation. Because why? Because Jerusalem had rejected Christ and that day began in 66 A.D., The rebellion against Rome led to Rome's army eventually coming and surrounding the city there in 70 A.D. And the siege which took place for four months there in Jerusalem. We cannot imagine what that was like. Them being there within the walls of Jerusalem. For four months nothing came into that city. They were starving to death. That's the reason why it says there that a piece of gold would buy a piece of dung. Now that's not a very pretty sight, I admit. But that point is trying to get across to us how devastating it was there in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus had warned against this desolation. And the cries of torment were heard throughout the region. Smoke filled the air from the fire that came upon Jerusalem. And Josephus tells us that over a million Jews were killed there in Jerusalem. Judgment came upon them. Judgment came upon them. Why? 
Because they rejected the Word of God. They rejected the Son of God. And this rejection continues today. When men reject Jesus Christ, all they can expect is a judgment. It has happened throughout the century. Mobs of men have turned away from the truth, have turned away from Jesus Christ. And they have been cast into an everlasting hell because they rejected the Lord of Lords. They were hell-bent on promoting their own agenda, their own way of salvation. And this is what happens to all who reject the Word of God. They have created their own Jesus, who isn't the Jesus of the Bible. That's the reason why we're told there in Matthew chapter 7 that many will stand before me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things that I did. And all the things that are mentioned there, prophesied, miracles, all those things that they did. And it says what? Jesus tells them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Because people want their own private genie. Meeting their own fleshly desires. They don't want to give up anything in this world. They don't want to suffer They want to have the best of both worlds. Their rejection and unbelief is what brought tears to Jesus' eyes. Knowing that only judgment waited for them. So he wept because he saw the very people who were cheering were the very ones who would later cheer, crucify him. They wanted Jesus to be their earthly king, to receive benefits from Him, but they did not realize that the benefits from Jesus that they needed to receive were the benefits that came from Him as Lord and Savior. That they needed to confess their sins and trust in Him alone as the Messiah. So Jesus was in tears while the crowd continued to cry, Hosanna! What a warning this is for us. What a warning it's for us to examine ourselves, to make sure we're in the faith. We claim to adore Jesus. Many meet today thinking that they're giving praise to Him. Are they? What about you? Are you really giving praise to Christ today? Do you understand what I'm saying? See, it's not enough to sing or shout with a crowd marching into the holy city, the question is, are you willing to accept Jesus Christ as the King of kings, who He really is, as Lord of lords, as one who humbled Himself to the death of the cross, that precise, horrible death that He suffered, for without it, no one would get to heaven. He did this. To bring sinners like you and me into glory. He was the crucified king as the son of God, as the son of man who gave himself as a sacrifice for sin to all who would believe and trust in him. We don't honor him by simply singing songs to him for one or two hours 
and feeling good or feeling religious or expressing some nice feeling about Him in our courses. No, we honor Jesus Christ only when we plead His cross as our only ground of hope and submit to Him as our King, as our Lord, and look to Him for power to live a humble life for Him in this wicked, dark world that we live in. See, unless you believe this Bible and what Jesus Christ has said and His cross being the only way to salvation, you can shout all the praise that you want to shout, but unless you look to Him with tears in your eyes and cry out to Him for forgiveness and cleansing from your sin, you will not know Him in glory. He knows what awaits you in eternity if you do not repent and trust in Him alone. Examine yourself and see if you have truly repented and trusted in Him alone. Be very careful to make sure that you are not like this crowd of religious fanatics who did not know Christ, who had a hollow religion, who had a carnal enthusiasm. We must receive the glorious salvation that Jesus Christ preached, who He earned for His people. We must look to Him and Him alone for this great salvation. For He is able. He is able. He is able to save. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for such a great salvation. We thank you for such a great Savior. And I pray that if anyone here does not know this Savior, that today would be the day that they would look to Him. Look to Him, for He is able to forgive their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And give them the righteousness that they need to be accepted in your sight. And Father, I pray for us who are Christians. Do not allow us to trust in things of this world. But cause us to keep our eyes on Christ. To live for Him. To take up His cross. And follow Him daily. This we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.